Hello, everyone. Good morning and happy Easter. I would like us to turn our attention this morning to the remarkable and strange story of Easter that first Easter morning. When the morning when the women who spent time around Jesus went to his dead body to prepare it for a, an actual proper burial, only to find that the tomb where they had laid Jesus after the crucifixion was empty. And how disturbing this must have been. Their first thought was when they walked up to this tomb that was empty, that someone moved the body or worse, someone stole the body. And then they met a couple of angels who just happened to be there, sitting on a rock that once covered the tomb. And one angel says to them, my favorite line of the Easter story. I, I would, if I was one of the angels, I would argue over who gets to say this. One angel says, why do you look for the living among the dead? What a great question. This question is pregnant with imagination and even deeper meaning. The angel is asking, why are you here where dead things are looking for someone who is not dead? What they say very plainly is this. They say, eventually, he is not here. I don't know what you're looking for here, but he's not here. He is risen. And with that line, he is not here, he is risen, we have the centerpiece of the entire Christian hope. That right there, that line is the centerpiece of the entire Christian hope. That dead things don't stay dead. That because of the resurrection of Jesus, one day everything sad will become untrue. That because he is not here, he is risen, the worst thing, like the crucifixion, is not the last thing. I mean, this is incredible. Think about it. You're not really allowed to... You're not really allowed to do this usually typically throughout the rest of the year, but today you get to meditate on it all day. I mean, we typically go about our days worried about our jobs or the economy or political climate or our relationships or what the next thing we have to do. But today we get to stop. This morning we get to stop and ponder and take in the empty tomb and meditate on the reality that this is absolutely incredible. What we're talking about, we're talking about Jesus who had all life in himself. He was himself eternal life. He was the greatest teacher to ever walk in this earth. He was the manifestation of pure light and pure love. And then he said he was going to die. And then he was going to die at the hands of his enemies. But that his death was not simply a death, just like any other death. His death would be a sacrifice. He would give himself over to death so that you and I and whoever believes in him would have eternal life and our sins would be dealt with once and for all and we can have fellowship with God and live forever with God and that everyone that we know or even people that we don't know who had life in Jesus' name would live forever as well and we would all live together forever in shalom with God and one another. I mean, that's incredible. And that, that's the centerpiece. The centerpiece of that is right here. The centerpiece of that promise, that hope, is right here at an empty tomb. It's right here with the resurrected Jesus. That all of that hope comes bursting out of this tomb. And, and when you say it like, like, like that, when you say that we have in Christ everything, when we have in Christ all that we need, that we have eternal life in Christ, and he's taken on death for us once and for all, it almost sounds too good to be true. 
author Luc Ferry in in his book, A Brief History of Thought, when he sought out to study and compare and summarize over 2,000 years of philosophy, says that nothing really compares or competes with Christianity. This, this author is an atheist, by the way. And he says that when he, when he looked to compare all the philosophies, uh, all philosophies actually can be boiled down to doctrines of salvation, how we can be saved from the fear of death. And what I love about this book is that the author honestly wrestles with Christianity. He deals with Christianity, I think, rather honestly. And by honest, I mean he was honest with the, the claims and the facts of Christianity. And I love how honest he was when he, but with himself when he's dealing with the claims of Christianity. He says that Christianity doesn't make death less painful. He says, rather correctly, Christianity claims that death has been defeated. He said, that's very interesting. He doesn't say, he's, this philosophy doesn't make death easier. It doesn't make you look at death and like stare death in the face and go, I don't, I don't care if you come at me. He says what death does is actually, or what Christianity does is it takes death and it says that death has been defeated. And not just defeated, he says Christianity claims that death is defeated by love. And this, I mean, I know this sounds like, oh, death defeated by love. It sounds good for us right now, but in the first century, it was a brutal place. Jesus died by crucifixion. A lot of people died by crucifixion. The life expectancy in the first century was like 30 years old. It was a brutal, cold place. But Christianity burst on this scene and like death is defeated by love and not just any love. What Christianity claims is death is defeated by the personal love of God. And we can have personal salvation through Jesus. This is what Luke Ferry says. Like Christianity is claiming that it's defeated death and it's defeated death by love, and it's defeated death by a personal love, the personal love of God, and that we can have a personal relationship with this personal God through Jesus and his death. He says, he says flat out, this is the best thing ever offered to humanity. This philosophy is, if it's true, it's the best thing that's offered to humanity. But he says, it's actually, in his, in his estimation, he writes, it's too good to be true. This is way too good to be true. That my sins can be forgiven, that I can stare death in the face and death has been defeated by a personal love, the love of God. See, the message and the implications of the death and the resurrection of Jesus seem too good to be true. And you know, Luke wasn't, isn't the first to think this is good, too good to be true. At the center of the resurrection account, we have a skeptic. Someone who was around when Jesus when people were talking about and seeing Jesus alive, and then when they told this person, Jesus is alive, the first thing he said is, there's no way that's true. I don't believe it, I won't believe it, that's too good to be true. Today we know him as Doubting Thomas. And here's his story, Luke 20. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, that was Easter Sunday, what we celebrate this morning, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, there's a couple things going on there. The doors are locked because they're in fear of the, the Jewish leaders, meaning the same people that killed, that had Jesus arrested and killed were probably gonna come after them next so they were afraid. But it's also queuing in because Jesus is just about to walk through a locked door, meaning he walked through the door, meaning I don't have time to talk about that. That's a different sermon. But anyway, <laughs> Jesus, through a locked door, came among them and said, Shalom, peace to you. After he said this, he showed them his hands, because that's where the nails went in, and he showed them his side, that's where the spear went in. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. That's an understatement, I would imagine. 
Like they were overjoyed. They saw the risen Jesus and they were overjoyed. Okay, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples, he was there as, he wasn't there, but he was one of the 12 that followed Jesus. Now Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now this is interesting. Where was Thomas? We don't know. So the other disciples told him, this is exactly what you do to a friend who missed out on something, right? Who didn't see it on like Instagram or something. Like this is what you would say that we, we have just seen the Lord. We have, Thomas, you missed it. We have literally just seen the risen Christ. But this is what Thomas said to them. Immediately he said this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands. This is fair enough. This is exactly what the disciples saw. Jesus is like, hey, look at my nail marks. So this is fair. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were. This is where it gets weird. I won't just, I want to put my fingers where the, where the nails were and I put my hand into his side. Okay, this is getting gross, right? Unless I stick my hand where the spear went in and I, I grab and I put my hand and like, I will not believe. I will not believe until I, I don't, I don't want to just see this. I'm going to stick my finger in where the nails were and I want to rub, put my hand where the spear was in. I will not believe. I will not believe. I just want that, that sentence to linger a bit. I will not believe. This is doubt. This word in the original Greek means that he chose to doubt. That or he deliberately chose not to believe. He heard testimony. He heard people say, we saw Jesus. The risen Jesus, the same Jesus. We saw his nail marks and he's like, nope, nope. I don't, I'm not believing. Unless I see it for myself, unless I actually put my finger in those nail marks, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. See, Thomas could have responded in so many different ways. He could have just like, we saw the Lord. Like, what? Where is he now? That would have been an obvious question. Where is he right now? Or what did he say to you? Or when is he coming back? Or what was he wearing? Because, you know, his grave clothes were like folded in the tomb. That would be my question. What was he wearing? They found his clothes. I just want to know. What is he wearing now? <laughs> Those are all fairly natural questions. But the way that Thomas responded was with unbelief, with doubt. And a doubt that required a certain kind of evidence. See, what this text is pointing out is that Thomas didn't want to believe. Thomas didn't want to believe. It was like he was already settled in his doubt. I, I have no idea how you came into this opera house this morning. Saying yes to maybe someone who invited you. I, I meet people that are fairly settled in their doubt. Like I, I, won't, I won't believe until, and then, you know, there, there could be all kinds of things that follow that. But what, what, what you really do in is you're settled in your doubt. Uh, we, f we can find our place, our ourselves getting into doubt from all kinds of different places. We can find ourselves doubting and getting there from all sorts of different ways. For some, doubt takes hold when we live through an extreme crisis or disappointment. We lose someone we love. Or we go through some great suffering or pain. And when we go through this great suffering or pain, doubt seeps in. Doubt takes over. If you don't have a Christian faith background, these sort of tragedies can drive you deeper into doubt so that they're like, you, you believe that there is no such thing as a good God and that tragedy that you just lived through proved it. 
and it drives you deeper and deeper into that sort of doubt. If you do have a relationship with Christ, something like this, some sort of tragedy that you go through, some sort of loss can cause doubt to leap to life and you start to wonder if God is real and if God is good and if God can be trusted at all with your life. For others, doubt isn't a philosophical wrestling or a philosophical choice. For some of you, doubt is brought on by a thousand little choices that cause you to drift away from your life with Jesus. You may have had moments in your life when you were faithful in prayer, in the Christian community, in church, in the scriptures, practicing the way of Jesus, but then the pressures of your job take over and it dries up some, some of that stuff that you were doing. Then maybe you start dating someone and you start to compromise again and again in a hundred small ways. You stop going to church and months, maybe years later, this thought creeps into your mind. I don't really believe in all that Christianity stuff anyway. See, doubt can happen by drifting away. I've seen this happen hundreds of times. And the result is always the same. You start to doubt the fundamentals of the Christian faith by just your slow drift away. I've seen doubt fostered by people in their life by simply overworking. It's a rather common experience in this town. You overwork, you get stressed, you stop sleeping regularly, or, and sooner or later you indulge in more and more mean cynicism. The less sleep you get, the more overworked you are, the more cynical you are. And the line between cynicism and doubt is thin. See, doubt comes in many forms and so do their causes. And still for others, doubt is rooted in fear. See, a skeptic is someone who says, I'm going to suspend judgment and not fully commit myself until, until the demand for sufficient evidence has been met. I'm going to suspend my judgment. Until all the evidence that I demand is met, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make a decision. And the reasoning sounds really objective and rational. But the dynamic that is going on underneath the surface in the skeptic is this. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to look like I'm gullible. Oftentimes, underneath the surface of a skeptic is fear. And the fear is the fear of being disappointed. The skeptic says, I would rather stand on the sidelines and look like an intelligent observer than risking trusting. And maybe this is where Thomas' skepticism and doubt is really coming from. It's the doubt of someone who has had their heart broken and doesn't want to fall in love again. A lot of us can relate to this. The doubt that Thomas had was the doubt that of someone who has been hurt so deeply that they guard themselves from ever being hurt like that again. It's when someone you love breaks your trust and you are filled with doubt and skepticism to trust them again. And you think they will never change. It's when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would and, and the, the world doesn't seem as safe as it did anymore. One of my current favorite writers, writers calls this kind of thinking despair. He says, Real despair isn't depression or an emotional illness. It can lead there, but real despair is more subtle. This is what he writes. He writes, despair is the death of our sense of surprise. The belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when consciously or unconsciously we say in resignation, that is the way I am 
That is the way things have always been for me and that is the way it will always be. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we are in a tomb. Much of us is dead and more of us is still dying. See, despair is when we can no longer trust, when we can no longer allow ourselves to be surprised by hope and we get entombed in despair. What he says next is this. Why is this kind of despair so dangerous? Because the resurrection is always, as it was the first time, a surprise. The totally unexpected, the impossible, and that which defies all logic, laws of nature, and the wisdom of common sense and convention. When we have every angle of reality so calculated and figured that we know all the possibilities, then, then nothing new can happen that can come along to surprise us. Sadly, our prophecy will then be self-fulfilling because we have ceased believing in God and grace in a real sense. We have slimmed down God and grace to fit our own small minds. We live not merely in despair, but also in mediocrity. See, this is where Thomas was. Thomas was in real despair, and this despair led him to doubt, and his doubt led him to skepticism, and his skepticism was rooted in fear. Fear of having his heart broken again. I will not believe that Jesus is alive. I believed in him once. I put all my hope into him once. And then I saw him die. Fool me once. He wasn't about to jump right back into believing again. He needed hard evidence. When I, when I read and listen to and talk with skeptics, this is what they all really want. They want hard evidence. More hard evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. More hard evidence that there is a loving God. And you couldn't get more personal, a more personal request for hard evidence than what Thomas is asking of Jesus. He says, I will not believe unless I put my own fingers into the holes that the Romans made in his body. Thomas wanted to be sure. He was not going to be fooled again. Thomas wanted to be sure beyond all possibility of ambiguity, hallucination, or trickery that this Jesus had genuine continuity with the dead Jesus that was on the cross. I want to make sure this is the exact same Jesus. I will not put my hope in him again if it means my hopes will be dashed. The Thomas story continues. A week later, meaning that next Sunday, his disciples were in the house again. Uh, the, the doors were locked, by the way. So that's kind of like, that's, that's a little nod there. And Thomas was with them this time. Hey, Thomas, well done. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came again and stood among them. Shalom. This shalom is like becoming his catchphrase really fast, right? Like walks in the room. Shalom. Peace to you. Then he said to Tom, he looked at Thomas. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It's moving to see how Jesus meets and accepts Thomas just as he is. Skeptic, doubter, despair, all of it. All the despair, all the cynicism, all the doubts, Jesus just accepts him just as he is. 
Jesus knows what evidence Thomas demands. And he accepts the challenge without complaint, without criticism. He just shows up to Thomas and says, Thomas, look here. He doesn't show up to Thomas and go, Thomas, are you kidding me? You're really going to ask for that? That thing? First of all, it's gross. Second of all, it's weird. What are you thinking? No, he doesn't. He just says, Thomas, come here. Put your hand here. Put your fingers where the nails were. Put your hand where their spear went in. He responds to Thomas's need and, e and cry, even if this need comes from a lack of trust. Even if what Thomas really needs is rooted in a lack of trust. Jordan B. Peterson, who is a clinical psychologist and professor and cultural critic, whose YouTube's video, YouTube videos have been viewed over 50 million times, uh, also who just recently wrote a, book, wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life, is the, it's actually the most read book on Amazon currently. From all I heard, um, Jordan B. Peterson is not a Christian, but I'm surprised by how deeply he has thought about and considered the Bible and the story of Jesus in his writings. In his book, 12 Rules, he makes the case that seeing the world scientifically and so firmly materialistic is a rather novel way of seeing the world. Humanity, he writes, has been around a very, very long time. And this way of seeing the world in terms of hard data, scientific data, is only like 500 years old. It's really, really young. And his point is this, and listen, this is what his point is. And his point is this, you actually can't, humanity can't gather meaning and what really matters in this life from sheer matter. That's his point. You actually can't, humans are not even wired to gather meaning and what really matters in life from sheer matter. His argument is that scientific data is not enough. We can have all the data, but that does very little to change us. And it doesn't change us deeply, not enough to, to give us real meaning in life. He says there's something deeper humanity needs than raw data or scientific evidence. And he says this, it is actually what we really need is personal experience. He writes that things we experience personally are the most fundamental elements of human life. Subjective experiences have more power to shape what is real to us and what matters to us, he writes, and he argues. Now, I say this, I bring this up, because Thomas demands hard scientific evidence. I mean, he almost wants to do a living autopsy of Jesus' risen body. That's what he wants, really hard evidence. What I require, Jesus, is I require to see the nail marks, and I need, I need to measure them, and I need to put my finger in them, and I need, to, I, need, I, need, I need all the hard data. He wants to poke and prod and investigate. But here's the question. Does he ever get there? Does he ever put his finger in the nail marks? Does he ever put his hand in Jesus' side? And the answer is no. I mean, we have that very beautiful, famous painting by Caravaggio of Thomas putting his finger in Jesus' side, but we never get that from the text at all. Maybe you think that Thomas went up there and went, but we, never, we, never, we don't get that from here. It doesn't say that. It says, Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, look at the nail marks, look at my side. And all we can tell is that Thomas is still standing among the 12, maybe in the back. I would imagine he's in the back, somewhere close to the back. And all he does is say in awe, my Lord and my God. 
see, what Thomas needed more than hard evidence was an experience, a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. That's, that's what was really going on. Oh, it was, it was cloaked in all this hard evidence talk. I think m m part of it was like, I wasn't there when he was here the first time. I missed out. Like, I, I'm bummed out. I don't want to believe now. I missed it. Like, I, I think around all the, the cynicism, around the hard shell of we want this and I want to see this and I want all of my questions answered around this, I think underneath that, what we really, really want is an experience with the risen Christ. See, I could have used my Easter sermon to explore all the historicity around the resurrection of Jesus. I've done that before. And there are great books and resources for that. But what I believe this text is teaching us, and I think what we learn from this is that we may think we want hard evidence, but what we're really seeking is an encounter with the risen Jesus. And if that is the case, then doubt can be a beautiful thing. I'll be honest with you, my, 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 the way that I've been praying for everyone in this, this, this building today is twofold, that those of you that are struggling with doubt, that you would come to believe in Christ. And if those of you that are, that are actually not engaging with Jesus and the resurrection, that you would start to doubt. I think doubt's a good thing. I think doubt is better than indifference. My prayer for you is that some of you would start to doubt, that you would start to engage a little bit, that you would start to go, if Jesus is real, then you know what I want to see, God? And that you would start to engage with God. I mean, what we learn from the story is that Jesus takes these requests very personally. Very, very personally. And that Jesus reveals himself. And the thing that you think you need, maybe you don't need. The thing that you think that you're after, maybe you're not really after. What you're really, 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 really longing for is an encounter with Christ. And if that's the case, then doubt can be a beautiful thing. Doubting while opening yourself up to the possibility of surprise is a beautiful thing. What, here's what, what, what Thomas had going for him. He doubted. He was a cynic. He did not believe, but he still was open to the idea of surprise. He was still in the room with the disciples. He's like, all right, if you guys say so. He showed up here last week. Let's see what happens. And then boom, shalom. <laughs> he was open to surprise. The famous quote by Dostoevsky says, it's not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born in a furnace of a furnace of doubt. Some of you guys are like, I, I missed the train. I wasn't, I didn't grow up in the church. I don't have all the easy ways of believing that someone who grew up in this worldview has. I have so many questions. So did, so did Dostoevsky. And he said, my Hosanna, my Lord, save me. That's what the Hosanna means, save me, God. My, my, my Lord save me came, was born in a furnace of doubt. He went through doubt, just like Thomas went through his doubt. Not around it, didn't dodge it, he went right through it. So are you full of doubt this morning? There's room for you here. There's room for you in the church. There's room for you. And what comes out of Thomas's doubt? What comes out of his doubt? When his doubt ends with surprise, what comes out? What comes out from Thomas's doubt is only the greatest proclamation of who Jesus is in all of the Gospels. Thomas was the only one that drew clear lines in the sand. I will not believe unless this. And what came out of his doubt was the clearest and most profound 
proclamation of the identity of Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus is proclaimed and announced here as God. Thomas was Jewish. They didn't believe in multiple gods. One God. Some people who don't believe that Jesus was God try to get around this scripture by saying that Thomas was cussing here. They see Jesus and, Jesus and, and, and uh, Thomas just goes, holy beep. Like that's like what they <laughs> say is happening. No, he's going, he's saying, my God. Like he's doing that. He's like, no, no, that's not what's happening. It's funny though. It's very funny. I think that's a, that's one way of looking at the text. It's not the right way. That's not what's happening here. He's actually proclaiming. He sees Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas, in this moment of encountering Jesus, understands Jesus' identity and the implications of Jesus' identity. He says, you're my God and you're my Lord. What that means is this. I no longer am the Lord of my life. I no longer do what I want to do. Do, I, am, I, I kind of serve under you, Christ. Like, I get, I get who you are, your identity. You are God and you are Lord and I will serve you. He gets his, the identity of Christ and the implications of what it means to follow Christ. So let's close here. Do you know what, you want to know what God is like? Thomas proclaimed, my Lord and my God. And you're like, what is God like? Maybe you've had that question what is God like? And maybe you're on a search. You're on, you're on a, your own research and your own skeptical search of what God is like. And you come to the, the Bible, and the Bible has some crazy stuff in it. I won't lie to you. And you might be looking at the, the, both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, and go, what is God like? And the answer is this. Look at Jesus. That's what God is like. Jesus is the perfect and exact image of who God is. All of the scriptures were pointing forward to the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that in times, in past times, God spoke through the prophets, but now God has spoken through his son, who is the exact representation, representation of his being. And so when we look to Jesus, we see God. And what do we see when we Look to Jesus and see God. I think we see what Thomas was invited to see. We see scars and we see the wounds of God. If you want to see what God is like, look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, what you'll see is wounds. You'll see nail, nail piercing through his hands. You'll see a tear in his side from where the spear went in. And I think Jesus would ask you, if you want to know what God is like, look, look at these nails, Marks. Look at this spear mark. One of my favorite poems of all time is a retelling of Thomas's encounter with Jesus. It's just this whole pericope told in a poem, and it goes like this. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal thy hands, that side of thine. We know today that wounds are what wounds are, never fear. Show us thy wounds. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. 
Why does God have wounds? Because you have wounds. He became like you so you could become like him. Jesus died so that when you die to yourself and believe in him, you will never die. You will have eternal life. The Thomas story is a story all about accommodation. Jesus accommodated to Thomas's exact request. But actually, the whole story of Jesus is one of accommodation. The accommodation is the wonder of Jesus' incarnation, that he became a helpless baby. And most climactically, the wonder of his whole crucifixion is all about accommodation. He dies in our place. He has become like us so that we can become like him and have life in his name. So today, may today be the beginning of your doubt. And may your doubt be open to the surprise of having an encounter with the risen Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray? After I'm done praying, we're going to sing a few more songs. And so let me say this. If this is your only time at church throughout the year, maybe you come a few times a year, wouldn't it be, I don't think it would be complete without you, without having someone pray for you. Like if you're going to do it, just do it. I'm going to come to church, like I mean, get some prayer out of it. And we would love to pray for you. If you're feeling rather low this Easter season or in the past season of life and the idea of, of doubt really resonates with you, I want to invite you to get prayer. I know prayer takes faith, but not much faith. Sometimes in prayer, we can actually rely on the faith of others who pray for us. We see that all throughout the Bible. And that's what our church is here to do for you. If you're like, I don't have that much faith to pray and I don't even know if it really works. Well, that's okay, we do. And we can pray for you. Allow us as fellow sojourners who today have faith to pray for you, allow us to pray for you. Whatever the thing it is that, you're, that this is stirring in you, if it is stirring anything in you if, you, if you want to open up your doubts to God, if you want to dare to do that like Thomas did, there's, there's room for that here. There's room for that if you've been in the church your entire life and you're like, oh, is there room for my doubt? There's room for your doubt. Lord, as we move into a time of, of worship and prayer, we pray that, that you would meet with us. I pray that doubt would start to percolate in the lives of people who maybe have just put off the whole idea of who you are, Jesus. That we would start to engage with you a little bit. That we would be open to the idea of surprise as well. I want to pray for that. I pray for those of, those of us in this room that are filled with despair, maybe despair over our, our relationships, thinking there is no way the person I'm with can change. Or we look at ourselves in the mirror, there's like, there's no way that I can change. This is just the way it is. And despair has taken over. And there's no possibility of surprise. I pray that you would open up, us up to the idea of the resurrection again. That when we go to an, a tomb where we expect to find the dead, we find the living. Open us up to that sort of surprise again. Open us up to the surprise of Thomas, 
who just gathered in the room that next week, not knowing what he would find there, but still showed up. And you showed up, God. And you answered his exact request. Lord, I don't, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even know what everyone needs here, but I know that y- you know, God, and you're on the way. You're on the way. You're on the way to rescue. And may we be open to the surprise that maybe you're not going to answer us in the exact way that we need because maybe that's not what we need. Maybe what we really need is just an encounter with you, God. So do that. Do that now as we worship, as we sing, as we respond. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.